Let's take the Word of God. If you have your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. As you turn here in your Bibles, we have, believe it or not, the nine studies in this chapter. This chapter, the entirety of the chapter, is a sermon preached by Stephen, who was uh, one of the first deacons in the first century church there at Jerusalem, and it is also the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. It's interesting to know that the longest sermon is not re- that's recorded is not by an apostle, not by Peter or Paul, but Stephen. It is also the first sermon that resulted in a martyr in the church. If you would read the Fox's book of Martyr, often when people think about the first martyr in the church, Stephen's name comes up. And the sermon would result, we know at the end, with the death of Stephen, and we now come in this tenth lesson on this sermon, and the reason why we're spending a lot of time on that is this is not the only sermon that was preached by Stephen or by the apostles. Indeed, we, we read in the book of Acts that daily and in every house, in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ every day. So we know that there's a whole lot of sermons than the one that we find throughout the ones we find throughout the book of Acts, but yet this one is recorded for our learning. And we spend some time looking throughout this chapter and we come now to the conclusion of this sermon to verse 51 and Stephen, if you notice throughout this sermon, because he is a Jew, a born-again Christian, yet namely he was born a Jew, he has been talking through this sermon and he said, our fathers, over and over again, our fathers, our fathers did it, our fathers. But as he comes to the conclusion, he separates himself with the Sanhedrin council and then he says, your fathers. And so here he turns and he directly speaks to them. I wish I was there. I wish I could have seen how that looked like. But he says in verse 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing in the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon Him with one accord and cast him out of the city, and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down, 
and crowd cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I would like to bring your attention to the reaction or what the Bible tells us was happening in the heart of those men who were part of the Sanhedrin Council in verse 54 when they heard these things. What things? What began in Acts chapter 7 verse 2 when Stephen began to preach. When they heard these things, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. I want to preach a little while this morning on cut to the heart. As we read throughout this book, and particularly as we come to this chapter, we ask ourselves throughout this sermon, where did the Jews, particularly as he's preaching to this audience, Stephen here is not preaching like I'm preaching today, to a group of mostly what I think is receptive hearers. I think. Amen? <laughs> he is preaching to the Sanhedrin Council. To the same group of men who orchestrated the death of Christ. To the same group of men who brought in false witnesses to speak against Christ. To the same men who brought false witnesses to speak against Stephen. That is the group that we're talking to. And throughout this sermon, Stephen has been preaching to them and he has showed them where they have gone wrong. He brings back Moses, a familiar story to them, an account that is part of their history. And he shows them where they went wrong. Based upon verse 25, he says, Now, our fathers, they understood not. What did they not understand? That God was going to bring about the deliverance through Moses. And in the same way, they did not understand that Jesus Christ came to deliver them from their sin. We also see that they refused God's deliverer in Moses in verse 35. They refused Moses as a ruler and a deliverer. And in the same way, those men who are part of the Sanhedrin council refused God's deliverer in Jesus Christ. But we also see that they would not obey God's message through Moses in verse 39. They would not obey Moses, but thrust him out from them, and their hearts turned back again to, into Egypt. And in the same way, the Sanhedrin council in that day, they did not obey God's message through Jesus Christ. But we ask ourselves, we know where they went wrong, but then we ask ourselves the question, why did they go wrong? And ultimately, we have to ask ourselves the question today, why does the world still go wrong today? Stephen answers that question. It is threefold. As we, if you missed that message, I would encourage you to look back and listen to it. But they went wrong in three ways. First of all, they went wrong because of the wickedness of their heart. That's what Stephen says. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. And as you read the record in the book of Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that's exactly what the Bible tells us again they did. Every time something bad happened, their hearts would turn back to Egypt. We also see that the raging of the passions of the flesh, remember what they would say. They would say, ah, we want the garlic and the milk and the onions. That's what we want back in Egypt. And they forgot that they were slaves. But also the pride of rejoicing in their own works. The Bible says they made idols 
and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Ultimately, that's what is always wrong with man, idolatry. Man does not want to come to God God's way. Man wants to come to God his own way. And so he makes the false gods and he says, that's who has brought us out of the land of Egypt. But then we ask the third question, and that is, how did God respond to them? Well, God responded to them the, the, the way He always responds to sin. In verse 42, the Bible says, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. And we know it ends up by verse 43 at the end of the verse, And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. God turned, God gave them up to more sin, and God carried them away. By the way, that is how God always responds to sin, and we know that because that is how God responded to sin in the person of Christ. That is why Jesus Christ said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God cannot look upon sin. And so sin was judged in the person of Christ, and God turned His face away from His Son. And so He has showed them that as he deals with the temple in those last verses from verse 44 through 50, he talks about the tabernacle which eventually became the temple that Solomon built. And he reminds them that they had an inordinate worship and attitude towards the temple. And he says God cannot uh, be contained or constrained by the temple. And we know that the Jews of that day would always debate. They had to debate with the Samaritans about where was God worshipped. And say, well, no, He is worshipped here in this mountain. No, He is worshipped at Jerusalem. And it was all about the temple and the place and the physical temporal place where God ought to be worshipped. And Stephen reminds them that the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. And so, through all of that, he comes now to the conclusion. And I want us to notice this conclusion. I want to uh, draw a number of uh, truths from verse 51, 52, and through the remainder of this chapter. Uh, perhaps we'll finish next week. But notice here, I want us to notice, first of all, the conclusion of the sermon. In this conclusion, Stephen is going to confront three things in the life of of those men who are part of the Sanhedrin. And I know that the direct application is to look at the Sanhedrin council, but the parallels with humanity, generally speaking, is the same. In other words, as Stephen tells them what are their problem and what their issue is, we can say today that the issue of man has not changed. It is indeed still the same today. And so he confronts, first of all, notice what he confronts, their hearts. In verse 51, he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. And so here he confronts uh, their heart. Now remember, he had said that earlier about their fathers. In their hearts, they turned back again into Egypt. In other words, he showed our fathers what was their problem. Their problem was their heart. And you know that. And he says, by, and now he draws that comparison. He brings the back to this conclusion. And he says, your heart is the issue. And by the way, that is always the issue with man. The Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? As we think about Stephen confronting their hearts, I want you to notice, first of all, as he confronts their hearts, we see that their heart was obstinate towards the message. 
He says here, first of all, that in their hearts they were stubborn. He uses the word, notice, stiff-necked. Now, literally speaking, a stiff-necked is, you know, you buckle your neck and um, sometimes my kids do this. If I'm bending over and I'm either picking up something, the children take that opportunity and they think that as soon as I bend over, they can run and then jump on my back. They just think that that's part of, you know, family life and I guess it is. And sometimes I'm taken back because there's no warning. You know, they just jump and they grab a hold of my neck and sometimes I, I fall back. But what do I do? When they jump on my neck, I just go stiff. Because they're pulling on the neck. And so I stiffen the back and I, I, I put my back up because I, I don't want to fall backwards. And so the, the imagery there of a stiff neck here, the word stiff neck literally means to be obstinate. When someone is obstinate, it means that they are stubborn. Have you ever met a stubborn person? A stubborn person is someone who uh, we would say tenaciously adheres to their opinions. It is someone who is fixed firmly in resolution, not yielding often to reason. They're stiff-necked, unmoved. And so he shows that their heart was, was stubborn. He says you are a stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears. You're stubborn. You don't want to listen with your ears, but ultimately you don't want to humble your heart. You're stiff-necked. Not only their heart was stubborn, but also their heart was self-deceived. Notice he not only says you are stiff-necked, but then he says you are uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, this would not be a message that perhaps Stephen would preach to Gentiles, to people who were not Jews, as he uses the word uncircumcised. But yet Stephen here was addressing Jews. And so he appropriately uses the word uncircumcised. You see, these Jews, they were all about the temple, they were all about Moses, and they were all about the law, all or so they thought. These people were very religious indeed, they were the religious leaders of that day. These men were men who worshipped God. Since they were Jews, we also know that they were all circumcised. And remember that the circumcision, according to Genesis 17, was a token of the covenant that God made with Abraham. In the first part, if you go, let's go turn to Genesis 17. Let's turn there and look at this record. In Genesis chapter 17, in the first part of this chapter, God speaks to Abraham and He reminds Abraham of the covenant that He had made with him back in Genesis chapter 12. As a matter of fact, often before God spoke with Abraham about something next that was to come, He reminded before that the covenant that He had made with him. And so He does so at the beginning of Genesis 17. But then He proceeds in verse 9 to institute the circumcision in verse 9. Notice. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. So notice it was not just for Abraham and his children. It would be for the children after them and the children after them. Namely the Jews. Verse 11, And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. So notice, what is the circumcision about? It is a, a token of the covenant that God made with Abraham. 
What's a token? A sign, a demonstration that Abraham believed God's covenant. Because if Abraham didn't believe God's covenant, he would not have circumcised himself and all his house. You see, that is the sign, it is the token, it is the evidence of the faith of Abraham. Verse 13, And he that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people, for he hath broken my covenant. Now, the circumcision would therefore come upon every male born in a Jewish family. This would be a permanent reminder of the covenant that God made with Abraham because the Jew could not think about the circumcision without thinking about the first part of Genesis 17, which is talking about the covenant. And so Stephen speaks to these Jews and he tells them this, I know you are circumcised in the flesh, But he says, but you are uncircumcised in the heart. That would be an insult to the Jew. You see, what was Stephen saying? When he tells them, you are a stiff-necked, and you are uncircumcised in heart and ears, what is he telling them? Uh, He is basically telling them this. You may be a Jew by name, but in heart you are actually a heathen. That's what he's telling them. You are boasting that you are the people of God. But you are not. That's what he tells them. You see, they thought that because they had been circumcised in the flesh, that that they were right with God. But Stephen tells them that they were not right with God because of their uncircumcised heart. The Jews were what? They were self-deceived. They thought that the action of circumcision in the flesh made them right with God. And it did not. This is not, by the way, just true in the New Testament when uh, uh, he's preaching or when you read Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4. This is also true in the Old Testament. Go with me to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 10. Now, Deuteronomy, they're about to go into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we have a a clear uh, understanding as God communicates through Moses to the nation of Israel and He tells them what He wants of them. Notice Deuteronomy 10. Verse 12, And now Israel, I'll give you a moment to get there. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God and to walk in all of His ways and to love Him and to serve Him and to serve the Lord thy God with all your, thy what? Heart and with all thy soul to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them and He chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. And there he says what he says, verse 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your what? Heart. And be not what? Stiff-necked. That's what God had always wanted of His people. But yet the pattern is that they may have been circumcised in the flesh of their foreskin, and they may have done outwardly the works of the Jews, but yet inwardly in their heart they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised. You see, Leviticus 26.41 tells us, 
If then their uncircumcised heart be humbled. What is it that Israel needed? What is it that the Sanhedrin council needed? They were circumcised in the flesh, but they were uncircumcised in the heart. What does it mean then to be circumcised in the heart? It means to be humbled in the sight of God. You see, the circumcision of the heart was what God wanted. What is the circumcision of the heart? It is the humbling of the heart. The heart is what often we read in the Bible is lifted up with pride. It becomes stiff-necked. The heart becomes cold and hard. And therefore it needs to be plowed. And so we see, notice, that their heart was obstinate towards the message. They were stiff-necked and they were uncircumcised in heart and ears. But then we see a second thing about their heart. Not only was their heart obstinate towards the message, but secondly, their heart was opposed to the Holy Ghost. This is quite a powerful Conclusion, he says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He says, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Wow. The word resist literally means to oppose. Now, what, what does that look like? We have to ask ourselves, well, first of all, who is the Holy Ghost? And what does the Holy Ghost do? Now, the wonderful thing about the Bible is we don't have to guess. The Bible gives us the answers. We know who the Holy Ghost is, and we also know what He does. Now, let's go to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, if you read chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, this is... Uh, right before Jesus Christ is about to be betrayed in the hands of sinners, he is going to be crucified, and he uh, that those chapters is uh, is Jesus Christ instructing and spending time with his disciples, and he teaches them that it is imperative for him that he go away, because if he goes not away, then the Comforter could not come unto them. And so he says that he is going to send unto them a Comforter. And we read here about this Comforter. We know the Bible says, which is the Holy Ghost. And notice what the Bible says. Uh, we find that the Holy Ghost in those chapters, chapter 14, 15, and 16, three times, the Holy Ghost is called this, the Spirit of Truth. Notice uh, John 14, 17. Even the Spirit of... Uh, notice verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Notice chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, who will send, uh, who, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth. So he's called the Spirit of truth. Again, chapter 16, verse 13. Howbeit, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. So here, three times in this portion of Scripture, 14, 15, and 16, He is referred to as the Spirit of truth. Notice in chapter 16, notice verse 7. 
He explains what the role of the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is going to be in the world. So what does the Holy Ghost do? Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world. Now we know what he does for the believer. He guides the believer into all truth. But then he also has a role in the world. What does he do in the world? He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now notice, verse 9, Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So we see here that the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit of God, is called the Spirit of Truth, and He speaks the truth to the world. You see, the world does not like to hear the truth. That's why Jesus says, You shall hear the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But the world is not interested in the truth, or I guess the world today, in the 21st century, is interested in its own truth. That's what we hear. You have your truth, I have my truth, we all have our truth, and we're all fine. No, no, there is only one truth. And the Spirit of truth, when He speaks, He's going to speak the truth. The world does not like to hear the truth about itself. The Jew, Jewish leaders of that day, listening to Stephen, were resisting the Holy Ghost. What, were they, what did they not like? They did not like the truth. Now think about it. These men of the Sanhedrin Council would be the greatest Jewish scholars of the day. If you had any questions about the first five books of the law, they would give them to you. But yet Stephen preaches and he expounds in those 50-some verses this great message and these scholars have nothing to say. They can't say to Stephen, No, you misrepresented Abraham. No, you misrepresented Joseph and the patriarchs. No, you, you misrepresented Moses and the children of Israel and how they treated Moses. You've misrepresented all this. You've mis misrepresented... The, they can't say any of that because they know that has not been the case. Stephen has just been... And by the, Bible, by, by the Bible tells us he was filled with the Holy Ghost. We read in chapter 6, the people debating with Stephen could not resist the wisdom that was in him. What was the problem? They were resisting the Holy Ghost, resisting the truth. Stephen was preaching and the Holy Ghost was oppressing upon them the truth about themselves and they deliberately opposed the truth about themselves. So, their heart was obstinate towards the message. And we see that their heart was opposed to the Holy Ghost. So we see that He confronts first of all their heart. And by the way, if salvation is ever going to happen in the life of someone, it has to happen in the heart. It is not a conformity of, of life. It is a transformation of the heart by the quickening work of the Spirit of God. Salvation. So He confronts their hearts first. That's where the issue is. That's where their fathers before had gone astray. They had turned in their hearts. But then he not only confronts their hearts, but secondly, he confronts their actions. Notice what he says. Let's go back to Acts chapter 7. 
Notice he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. What does that look like? Well, verse 52. Here's a question to the Sanhedrin council. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? <laughs> That's a great question. They know the answer, by the way. Uh, I can't think of any. Moses, the greatest one, in their estimation, the greatest leader, he was resisted. He was opposed. He was persecuted. Joseph, the one to whom we find no sin recorded, he was envied, persecuted. He says, And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Well, that is, that's quite a charge. You are betrayers and murderers. So he confronts their action. Now, throughout this chapter that Stephen is preaching, this is what Stephen has been showing them throughout this sermon. Go back to, notice chapter 7, verse 9. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph. Persecution. Notice chapter 7, verse 27. But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? They rejected Moses. Verse uh, 35. This Moses whom they refused, saying... Who made thee a ruler and the judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and the deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. Verse 39. To whom our fathers would not obey. Who was that talking about? Moses. But thrust him from them and then their hearts turned back again into Egypt. And so here Stephen has been showing them that's what our fathers have always done. By the way, that is exactly what Jesus said himself. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. This was not true during the time of the first century apostles. This was true during the time of Christ as well. In Matthew chapter 23, obviously Jesus Christ here in this context pronounces His woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. But notice the portion in Matthew 23, down verse 31, He says this, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. <laughs> That's what he says. You scribes, Pharisees, you don't want to know who you are. You say you're the children of Abraham. But truly, what are you? You are them, are the children of them which killed the prophets. Verse 32. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ooh. You see, Jesus says, he basically tells them, I know that you are going to continue in the footsteps of your fathers. In what? In the crucifixion. Verse 33. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? You see, it was true during the time of Stephen, it was true during the time of Christ, but it's been always true throughout the history of the nation of Israel, and by the way, it is still true today. You see, the Acts here, as we look and we read Acts chapter 7, we think to ourselves, these great scholars could say nothing against Stephen. So what did they do? They resorted to other means. Isn't it interesting that all throughout human history, uh, the believers are looked upon as irrational? 
And yet those who are truly irrational are those who oppose the believers. They do things that are just so far removed from what a rational person does. You see, he not only confronts their heart, he confronts their actions, but thirdly, notice, he confronts their hypocrisy. Notice, Acts 7, verse 53, he's still talking to the Sanhedrin, he says, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. You know what he tells them here? He calls them, he calls them hypocrites. I'm sure that somewhere in the midst of this Sanhedrin council, they would have portions of Scripture piled up in different places there. And I'm certain that some men of the Sanhedrin council, when Stephen was quoting portions of the Old Testament, I'm sure that some of them would look through that just to make sure uh, they could see if he could say anything amiss. But they couldn't find anything. And here he tells them that you've received the law by the disposition of angels, by a supernatural means. By the way, that's why we believe that the Scripture is, is given by inspiration of God. It is not given by man. It is given by God. It is perfect. It is inerrant. And we can believe it as such. But, his, but you have not kept it. Now, he speaks here in the past tense. In what way? Well, one of the basics of the law is, Thou shalt not kill Another one is, Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's exactly what they had done to Jesus Christ. Having done nothing wrong. As he stood before the Roman, the Roman leader, Pilate, Pilate says, I find no fault in him. But he knew that for envy they had delivered him. And so he knew that there was nothing that Jesus did that was wrong. And yet they, they brought in false accusers. By the way, they did the same thing here in Acts chapter 6. They did the same with Stephen. They brought in false accusers. They did that with Christ. They did that with Stephen. It ended with the death of Christ. And it's going to end with the death of Stephen. And so what does he do? He confronts their hypocrisy. He says, that's what you've done. And that's what they're about to do. They're about to kill a man without a cause They've already brought false witnesses. They've broken the divine law of God. And they're so blind that they can't see it. Their heart is so wicked and so removed from God that they can't even see their own wickedness. So, those are the three things he confronts. He confronts their hearts, their actions, and their hypocrisy. I'm not going to, I can't finish this message, but let me conclude with this. I want us to think about this conviction as I brought our attention to what, what, is, what, what happened in the heart of those men that are part of the Sanhedrin. Notice verse 54. When they heard these things, now certainly that's the whole message, but particularly I think what they had a problem with was the application, the conclusion. Because throughout the whole message, remember he's been saying, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers did this. But now he turns and says, your fathers and you are doing the same thing. When they heard these things, verse 54, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. The word cut literally means to saw asunder. To cut in two. The word means that these men were exasperated. 
to exasperate means to, to anger, to irritate to a high degree, to provoke, to stir something up. When we think about inflaming, we, we have a fire pit in the back of our yard and every once in a while, we haven't done so in, in a long time, I guess because of the heat, but certainly when the fall comes, we'll have a fire pit and gather the kids around and do roasted marshmallows and hot dogs and all that stuff. It's going to be a great time. Now you know they're going to tell me, I said that, so now we have to do it. So, But the fire, when it, it kind of sits there after a while, it kind of dies down. It's still burning, the coals are still in there. And do you know how you get the fire going again? You just stir it up. You get your, whatever instrument you want to use, a stick or whatever, and you put it in there and you start stabbing it. You start moving the room around and you start disturbing what's going on and all of a sudden the fire picks up. You don't even need sometimes to put more wood on it. You just need to prick it, stir things up and then the fire rages here. So the same idea here is to exasperate, to enrage, to excite, uh, to inflame to an extreme degree. So they hear the message from Stephen and the Bible says and they were cut to the heart. Something happened in their heart. Uh, it, they felt like their heart was being cut in half. And it, that, that, that the words of Stephen, not the actions of Stephen, none of the demonstration of his hatred, his words, cut them. Now we've seen something like that happen before. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Remember when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost? He's talking to not the Jewish leaders, but to a group of Jews. The Feast of Pentecost, the Jews from around the world would come back to observe that feast. And so he's preaching to Jews who certainly lived within Jerusalem and Judea, but also to Jews who were, had been part of the diaspora scattered about throughout the world who would come back. And Stephen preaching on the day of Pentecost, he preaches what? Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, that's the message of the church. Jesus of Nazareth. Who is he? What has he done for us? He offers salvation. But notice what he says in verse 37 of Acts 2. Now when they heard this, so same thing that happened. They heard. The Sanhedrin heard something. The crowd in Acts 2 heard. And notice, and they were pricked in their hearts. It's a different word than cut, but this, the idea is the same here. The idea of prick is to, to drive through. The same idea, to stir something up. And so they were pricked in the heart. Uh, it means to, to pierce through, to uh, also to agitate violently. And so, those who were listening to the message from Peter, their, something was happening in their heart. They were agitated. They, they realized. Now think about it. The Jews were the people of God. And they thought to themselves, well, we are God's people. And, 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 uh, and God loves us. And God uh, it did not send His Messiah in Christ. He's going to send His Messiah one day. He's going to establish His kingdom. And now Peter preaches to them. He says, you by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Messiah, that's what you did. And by the way, Joel prophesied of that. Isaiah prophesied of that. That's what you would do. And I'll show you that he's the Messiah. And so something deep agitation took place in their hearts. But notice what they said. What, what do we do? What shall we do? Verse 37. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Je of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You see the Sanhedrin 
Those men that are part of the council, they, they were cut to the heart when they heard these things. Just like the Jews in Acts 2 heard the preaching of Peter and they were pricked in their hearts when they heard these things. You remember the Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And Stephen has just called those men, basically, by being uncircumcised in heart and ears, he has called them heathens. And so their heart did not like that. The Bible says they gnashed on him with their teeth. The word gnash means to, to grate the teeth. If you have two surfaces, you rub them together. When we think about the grating of the teeth, it means to, to wear something away, to grate us, to rub one thing against another so as to produce a harsh sound. Remember I had a teacher, we had those old chalkboards. You remember those old chalkboards? Most of you grew up around those chalkboards. Sometimes they would write it and then you'd hear like, ah, oh, the grating. And sometimes a student would come around and he'd get his nails and he would go like this. and Oh, it just did something. Why? The, the gnashing of the teeth is that same thing. You see that? It, caused an, it made him so uncomfortable. They went on to stone him to death. Now I'm going to draw a contrast next week between the way these men acted irrationally and how Stephen acted. And I'm going to ask the, ourselves the question, who would we rather be? But I'm concerned here with this cutting of the heart. The Holy Spirit was at work in the lives of men. And when they were agitated, convicted, cut, not by, the, by, not by Stephen, but by the Holy Ghost, they resisted it, they acted against it, and they killed a man without cause. That is the irrationality of unbelief. Right there in display before our eyes. And I wonder this morning if there's someone in this room. And perhaps you sense and you know that you're not a born-again Christian. And when you hear the preaching of the gospel or the sinfulness of man, there's something that is agitated within you. And I tell you that that is the Holy Spirit of God. Trying to prick your heart and cut your heart and show you that you are nothing with God and that your righteousness is but filthy rags. There's two things you can do. The response in Acts chapter 2 or the response in Acts chapter 7. You see, when you hear the gospel, there's only two directions to go. You will either become irritated and angered or you will be irritated and humbled. When something happens, you either stiffen up I'm not going there. I'm not going to do it. Or the heart can bow down before God and says, you're right. What must I do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You see, the Holy Spirit is actively working, speaking truth. And we, by the way, this is true not just for the unbeliever, it's true also for the believer. You know what he says in Hebrews? He says to those Hebrew Christians, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the wilderness when they tempted me. In other words, it's true 
in the lives of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior for us to get to the place where we harden our hearts and when God pierces our hearts, we stiffen up and say, mm, no, I'm not going to do it. Or we can humble ourselves. You see, there's only two actions. We are never neutral when God speaks. We're not neutral. So, no, no, I'm, I'm neutral. I just can walk away without feeling anything. Then you've just hardened yourself. And you're finding yourself slowly waning away from your fellowship with God. When you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. And we should count it a privilege that God, who is holy and righteous, would have any dealings with sinners. That God, who is righteous and holy, would want to speak to us and make Himself known to us. We should count it a privilege and it should cause us to fall humbly at His feet.